Every Lord's Day in the afternoon service, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism as a summary of the Christian faith and the confession of this church. And we find ourselves this afternoon in Lord's Day 21 concerning the Holy Catholic Church. And so we'll read that Lord's Day. We'll also read an excerpt from the Belgic Confession uh, after this. And so we'll read the first question and answer of Lord's Day 21. What do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Christian Church? I believe that the Son of God, out of the whole human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, defends, and preserves for Himself, by His Spirit and Word, in the unity of the true faith, a church chosen to everlasting life. And I believe that I am, and forever shall remain, a living member of it. Let's also turn to the Belgic Confession, Article 27. Article 27 has the title, The Catholic Christian Church. We believe and profess one Catholic or universal church, which is a holy congregation and assembly of the true Christian believers who expect their entire salvation in Jesus Christ, are washed by His blood, and are sanctified and sealed by the Holy Spirit. This church has existed from the beginning of the world and will be to the end, for Christ is an eternal King who cannot be without subjects. This holy church is preserved by God against the fury of the whole world, although for a while it may look very small and as extinct in the eyes of man. Thus, during the perilous reign of Ahab, the Lord kept for himself 7,000 persons who had not bowed their knees to Baal. Moreover, this holy church is not confined or limited to one particular place or to certain persons, but is spread and dispersed throughout the entire world. Yet it is joined and united with heart and will in one and the same spirit by the power of faith. So far from our confessions. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we've been working our way through the Apostles' Creed over the last many weeks, uh, we've been reminded often that it is the oldest confession of the Christian church. And we've been reminded as well of the significance, uh, the importance of every line in the Creed. Every phrase uh, is rich with meaning, has a a, a significance uh, that the Christian church treasures. Uh, so we've, we've seen that in every line, and, and that's one of the benefits of doing a study like this as we work through the Heidelberg Catechism as it leads us through the Creed, is we see how much meaning there is in these uh, confessions. We sing the Creed or recite the Creed every Sunday, uh, but we want to be reminded that it is rich with meaning, uh, rich with history as well. Uh, So far, the Apostles' Creed from the beginning of the Creed until now has been focusing on the triune God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, and the different works of each of the persons of the Trinity. We've seen what God the Father has done in creation, in providence. We've seen what Jesus Christ, uh, who He is, and what He has done 
for the church. And also, we've seen what the Holy Spirit is doing and has done. Uh, Now, the last part, we're in a transition here. The last part of the creed deals with several core doctrines that cannot be isolated under just one person of the Trinity, but belong to the work of the whole Trinity. Uh, There are several core doctrines that the creed concludes on. And the first of these is the Christian church. Uh, We confess in the creed, I believe in the holy Catholic Christian church. The question before us this afternoon is, what does that confession mean? And what does it also teach us? Now, the reality is, sadly, much of modern Christianity has no conception of what the church is. Uh, They don't know what it is. They don't know why it matters. This is true of of most of modern Christianity. To many people in our culture, also in uh, the Christian church, uh, the church is often seen as as this voluntary human organization, uh, sort of a club. You get together with like-minded people and you have a sort of club. Uh, And with the huge variety of churches you can find in North America, uh, the assumption is you basically just choose the club that fits your personal needs. There's a a consumer mentality to the church. Uh, You can find a, a church that matches your style, your preferences. Oftentimes we hear people express that. Oh, I don't go to that church because that's, that's not my worship style. It doesn't match my, my own personality. Uh, and I can't say it strongly enough, this is so far away from what Scripture teaches concerning what the church is. Uh, This wrong understanding of the church leads many people to treat the church and to treat church membership far, far more casually and nonchalantly without concern uh, than what Scripture teaches us uh, to do. Uh, So it is my my hope for us, my prayer for us, as we work through this doctrine in, in this week and the next, that we would really immerse ourselves in the Word to see what the Word teaches concerning the church, uh, what it is, why it matters, and that we would be ready to listen, to humble ourselves before the Word, and in that way grow in a more mature way of thinking about the church and, and why the church matters. Now, as we begin to listen to the Word of God on this, the first point that we discover that is absolutely central is that the church is the work of God. The church is the work of God. It is not the work of human effort, human self-organization. The church is something that God has built and that God sustains. If you listen to the answer in the Heidelberg Catechism, what do you believe concerning the church? It doesn't even say, I believe that the church such and such. It starts with Christ. I believe that the Son of God gathers, defends, and preserves His church. Uh, The church is the work of God. Uh, We can see this by the different words that Scripture itself uses for the church. Uh, There are several different words that get translated church in the New Testament. The most common one is the word ekklesia in in the New Testament. It's a Greek word, uh, which literally means called out. Uh, The church is that which is called out by God, uh, out of the world. We see there in that very word, 
The church is the work of God. God is the one who calls, who leads the church out of the world. Now, one of the places that emphasizes this the most strongly is the first letter of Peter, which we've just begun working through. Uh, The Apostle Peter, as he's writing to these scattered and persecuted Christians, uh, comes back again and again to this point that they've been chosen and called out by God. Uh, 1 Peter 1, verse 15, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. The church is called by God. uh, And the very word that Scripture uses teaches us that truth. Another word, too, that is often used in Scripture for the church is the Greek word kuriakos. This is actually the the root of the English word for church. It's hard to imagine how kuriakos over time uh, gets pronounced church, uh, but that is the root of of the English word. Uh, And this word kuriakos uh, literally means belonging to the Lord. Belonging to the Lord. And there again, we're reminded the church is not ours. It's not our work. It is the Lord's work. Uh, It does not belong to us. It's not up to us to govern the church however we please, to organize it however we please, to structure it however we please, uh, and and certainly not to define it however we please. Uh, It is Christ's church. It belongs to Him. Uh, One of the implications of this is we don't get to start a church if we have an idea of we'd love to have a church like such and such, let's, let's just start one. Uh, we sometimes use that language, uh, but we should recognize, no, Christ is the one who builds the church, not us. It's not up to our preferences, our styles. Uh, it's Christ who will do his work. Now, we might uh, decide, this may happen in the uh, eventual future, that we say, hey, the church is growing. Uh, We should start a church in Arthur or Mount Forest or something like that. Uh, we, We speak that way, but we should be conscious of the fact that all we can do is gather as God's people in response to His calling. It's still His church which He has called and and gathered. And we see this throughout Scripture right from the beginning. It's God who calls Abraham out of Ur. That's God's sovereign initiative. It's God who comes to Isaac and Jacob as He leads and guides them, uh, the, the church of that day. It's God who provides for the people in Egypt under Joseph, and then God who under Moses calls them out of Egypt. And God doesn't just call and gather the church. He even creates the church by instilling the faith that makes them the church. Uh, You think, for example, during the days of Elijah, uh, where God has to tell Elijah, I've kept for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Uh, Their refusal to fall before idols was God's work in them, keeping them, preserving them uh, for himself. Now, Christ teaches us the same in the New Testament. He says to Peter in Matthew 16, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. That's Christ building His church. Uh, We see the same thing, just one more uh, place, in Acts chapter 2. When Peter's preaching to these crowds gathered in Jerusalem, uh, and and then it says 3,000 people respond to that preaching and were baptized. And, and then the, the last verse of that chapter says, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The Lord 
added to their number. Not Peter, not the apostles. They, they are not the ones who added to the church. It is Christ uh, who did this. Uh, so this is our first principle. It's the Lord's church, and it's the Lord who builds His church. Uh, this is the place we have to start if we're going to understand what the church is. Uh, and so, as I mentioned, we see that also in the Catechism's answer. I believe that the Son of God, out of the whole human race, gathers, defends, and preserves His church. Uh, when we start there then, recognizing uh, who it is that builds the church, we can then provide a, a definition of what the church is. Uh, and we can say, the church is, as the Belgic Confession says, the assembly of believers who are gathered by Christ in the unity of true faith and chosen for everlasting life. They're gathered by Christ. They're united, for, uh, united by their true faith, which is given by the Spirit, and they're destined for eternal life. That is a, a definition of the church. Uh, we want to recognize that gathering, Christ's gathering, is something that Christ does through His Spirit and His Word. These are the, the biblical instruments that Christ teaches us He uses. His Spirit and His Word. Uh, and and to, that's not just a, a trivial fact. It's essential for understanding what the church is. Uh, it, it is not an institution that exists by its own strength or its own right. It's the Word of Christ and the Spirit of Christ that produce and sustain the church. Uh, to put it another way, the church is born out of the Word. Uh, the Gospel is preached. You see that in Acts 2. The Gospel is preached, and the Lord's Spirit's at work, and the church is built. Uh, those are the instruments God uses. Uh, this is one of the big uh, points that the Reformation rediscovered in the 1500s because the Roman Catholic Church sees the church as defined by institution and even goes so far as to claim the church creates the Word. The church creates the Word. They argue, uh, you wouldn't know what your Bible is. You wouldn't know what books belong in or out without the church's authoritative decision that these are the books of Scripture. Well, the, the Reformers responded, no, quite the contrary. The Word, God speaking, produces the church. Uh, the church will respond to that but it begins with uh, the word of Christ. Uh, we, we saw this uh, as well uh, this morning, uh, where, where Peter says in, in 1 Peter 1, You've been born again, not with perishable seed, but imperishable, the living and abiding word of God. That's the source for your new birth. Uh, the word creates the church. We saw this as well in our, our reading from John 10. Uh, Christ says, my sheep will hear my voice and follow me. Again, the word producing uh, the church. Uh, this matters for not just how we think about the church, but also when we talk about growing the church, uh, planting uh, the church. Uh, somehow Facebook figured out that I was a pastor. Um, I suppose maybe I told them at some point. Um, and, and so I get these ads all the time talking about how, how to create church growth, how to grow your, your church. Uh, and, and much attention is given to methods and techniques and programs that will uh, almost automatically just require the result of a church growing. Uh, and, and much attention gets, gets uh, 
is given to these, these different methods that deal with peripherals, uh, whether that's uh, the music style that your church uses uh, or, or the programs or the community work in which your church is involved. And there, there's a place for all of those things. Uh, the one ad I've not yet seen is, is the one that says the church is born by the preaching. Faithful preaching is what produces the church. And that's the biblical pattern that we see. Uh, the heart of how the church grows is the word of God is preached. And the sheep hear his voice, hear the shepherd's voice, and follow him. Uh, the, the same means, in other words, by which God feeds us week by week is also the means by which God calls those to the church in the first place. Uh, so if we are serious about things like evangelism and growing the church, then nothing should be more important to us than bringing our friends, our neighbors, our colleagues before the preaching of the word. Christ will do his work where his word and his spirit are present. Uh, even if, if the preacher is, is lousy and not very gifted, hypothetically, I've heard that can happen. Uh, even so, the preaching is God's chosen means to grow his, his church. Uh, the sheep will come when they hear the shepherd's voice and not because they're impressed with the instrument through which the shepherd speaks. Uh, as we read also in, in 2 Corinthians this morning, the preacher is nothing but a jar of clay. What matters is the treasure uh, that he is, is delivering. Uh, so also, if we, if we desire to plant a church uh, and see it grow, the, the fundamental... Uh, technique, if you want to call it that, is make sure there's preaching of the word. Where the word is preached, the sheep will come. Uh, We're not here to, this may be offensive, but we're not here to call the goats. Christ wants to call his sheep. Let his voice be heard and the sheep will come. Now we can have our our, our programs and our, our methods and there's nothing wrong with them, but they should never eclipse or substitute, much less, the preaching of the word. Uh, while we're on, on this point, uh, sometimes here I hear this in catechism uh, from time to time. People talking about how uh, they have a friend or a colleague who's interested in, in Christianity, in the Christian faith, but, but the, the uh, member of our church is, is afraid to invite them to our church and wonders, should it, would it be better to invite them maybe to a, a more accessible church, an easier church. Uh, maybe that's because our, you know, our dress code, uh, which we don't have, uh, but we dress in a certain way, uh, is, is intimidating, or, or the worship style is, is too foreign, or the people are not uh, very welcoming. All these different reasons can be uh, given. Uh, and, and there may be truth in these different factors. They, they are there. Perhaps we as a congregation are not very good at welcoming visitors. Uh, perhaps there is the risk that, that some blockhead member is going to say something insensitive. could even be the pastor, that particular blockhead. Uh, but even so, uh, I would respond, and, and Scripture would respond, well, in the first place, we're never going to get good at welcoming guests if we don't get practice. So it becomes a self-fulfilling uh, prophecy. Uh, but in the second place, and here's the, the main thing, uh, do you believe what you confess that faith comes by the word accompanied with the Spirit? 
Because if that's true, then that's the only factor that ultimately matters. Or do you think that it's somehow we, by our friendliness or the attractiveness of our programs, that secures and keeps a newcomer to the Christian faith? It is not us. It is Christ who does this. Now, we can work on our end to make sure we're a welcoming church. But we recognize at the end of the day, it is Christ who will do this work. Uh, I've heard some stories of some pretty terrible evangelists doing just about everything wrong, and yet somehow the message still gets across. You think of Jonah uh, coming to Nineveh, uh, saying, uh, this is the last place I'd ever like to be, and I'd be very happy if you all would reject this message uh, so, that Christ, so that God can, can kill you all, as he has said he will do in 40 days. Uh, and instead, the city of Nineveh repents and believes Uh, Christ will work with his uh, means uh, despite the lousiness of of the means themselves. Uh, so, So we do confess the church belongs to Christ and it is gathered by Christ by the, the, the preaching of the word and his spirit. Now, there are several more things we should acknowledge about the church that, that show up here in the Apostles' Creed. Uh, and, and there's a couple more uh, mentioned in the Nicene Creed. Uh, several important things that, that the Creed says about the church. In the first place, we, we almost skipped this, not realizing, but the church is one. So I believe in one holy Catholic Christian church. The church is one. There is and only ever has been one church. Uh, The church is often described in Scripture, as I mentioned earlier, as the bride of Christ. Uh, And Christ is not a polygamist. Uh, He has one wife, one bride. Uh, There is only one church. Now, someone might hear that and object, well, no, 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 no. Isn't there, you know, the Reformed Church and the Presbyterian Church and the Methodist Church and the Baptist Church and the Roman Catholic Church and, and, and so on? It sounds like there are lots of churches. Uh, but this was also one of the great recoveries of the Reformation uh, in the 1500s was, was the biblical teaching uh, that the church is not defined by institutional or federational or denominational lines, uh, but is rather one church, the assembly of all those throughout the world and throughout history uh, who are gathered by Christ in the unity of the faith. And that will be expressed in local congregations, but they are together part of one church. This is also what's meant by the second term the creed uses, the Catholic Church. Uh, Now, Catholic is not referring to Roman Catholic, uh, but simply means universal, the universal church. Uh, And it means that the church is not limited to one time or one place, uh, but exists uh, from the beginning of the world until now in many places throughout the earth. There's no one single federation or one single denomination that encapsulates the whole of the church. Not only because the church exists in other parts of the world, but also because it exists in other parts of history when our federation did not even exist. This is one of the reasons it's wrong to refer to the federation as the church. We sometimes speak in that way, uh, calling our our federation the church. Uh, The name of our federation is the Canadian and American Reformed Churches. 
in the plural, uh, because we are gathering a bond of local churches uh, as part of the one church of Christ. Uh, In our tradition, we're very used to thinking along federational uh, lines, but we should bear in mind it has not always been that way in in history. For for much of history, including in the early church, uh, as well as in the Reformation, there were no federations. Uh, There were only local churches. At the time of the Reformation, for example, there uh, there was the Church of Strasbourg, or the Church of Geneva, or the Church of Wittenberg. Uh, and some of these churches were more closely allied with Martin Luther's teachings, or Zwingli's teachings, or Calvin's teachings. But there were, there were no federations to divide them. Uh, they saw one another as, true, as local churches and part of the one true church of Christ. Uh, so we should bear in mind that although federations are a great blessing uh, as churches keep each other accountable, uh, they do not constitute the boundaries of the Christian church. They're gatherings, they're bonds between local Christian churches. Uh, we can see this from another angle by, by asking, uh, do we rightly see ourselves as part of Christ's church that extends beyond uh, our federation, both geographically, beyond uh, this place in the world, uh, but also back through history. Uh, Do we trace our history back to the beginning of the Christian church? Uh, Our confession states that that the Son of God, uh, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers and defends one Christian uh, church out of the whole human race. Uh, which means the church did not come into existence in the liberation of 1944 or uh, the reformation of the 1500s. The church existed before then. Uh, This is a question Roman Catholics often uh, direct against Protestants. Uh, Where was your church before the reformation? Uh, It's a question that Protestants often struggle with because we tend to assume that a church with problems ceases to be a church, and so we have to answer, well, it wasn't there. Uh, But that is not, that was never the Reformed uh, answer. Now, you could answer, um, where was your church before the Reformation? Well, we were hiding from you guys, uh, mostly, uh, for most of the time. We were fleeing from those who were persecuting the church. We were being burned at the stake. You think of uh, men like John Huss in the uh, 1300s. Uh, a priest ordained in the church who led his congregation in the truth of the gospel and was burned at the stake for it. Uh, But another way you might also answer the question that reformers also did, uh, so the question, where was your church before the Reformation, is is like asking, where was your face before you washed it? It was still there. It was just dirty. Uh, It needed reforming. It needed cleansing. That doesn't mean it wasn't there before. Uh, There were impurities in the church. There were errors in the church. There were problems with the preaching. There were problems with the sacraments. There was a huge lack of church discipline, but it was still the church of Christ. And this, this matters because we can sometimes assume that if, if the, we use the marks of the church and we do that wisely, but we cannot assume that if, if one of the marks is missing or is tarnished, uh, that the church suddenly ceases to exist there because we would assume then we would imply the church, for the better part of Christian history, did not exist. 
if that's our measure of, of the church. Uh, we cannot uh, go that way. We would, cease, we, we would deny our own confession that, that it's from the beginning of the race, uh, beginning of the world to the, to the end out of the whole human race. Uh, and so what happened in, in the Reformation uh, is that the apostate uh, remnants of what once was the church uh, that had turned into nothing but an empty shell uh, had, had taken upon themselves the authority of Christ claiming to be the church and the Reformers then responded, no, that's a false church. That is not the true church of Christ. Uh, and and uh, so, as, as we confess in the Belgic Confession, we have marks of a false uh, church. Uh, but we do not say that the church before the Reformation, uh, because of all of its problems, was not really the church. It was the church of Christ, though there were serious problems with it, though it needed badly reformation. Uh, it, there were elements in the church that had no right to call themselves uh, by the title of church because the Spirit was not present. And so the Reformers' response was, where the Spirit's not present, the church is not there. Uh, so to, to be faithful to our confession and the heritage of, of the, Reformed, uh, the, the Reformers, it is important for us to hold on to this word Catholic. The, the church is Catholic, it is universal, and it does stretch from the beginning of the human race, or the beginning of the world to its end. Uh, this is, in fact, this is what, uh, this is the definition of a sect. A sect is a, a group uh, that, that separates itself from the Catholic church and, and fails to recognize uh, the, the Catholic church. Uh, anymore, and the reformers rejected these these sects. Now, th- this is, of course, not to say that the division that we find in the church today between so many different uh, federations and denominations is all fine and good. Uh, no, the church is called to be one, one in spirit, one in confession, as well as one in 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 recognition of of one another, uh, one in practice, one in institution. The church should be uh, formally and visibly, externally also united. Uh, the church throughout should hold itself uh, accountable. The different congregations to one another, uh, but we do recognize, as it is right now. That's simply not the case. The church is not externally uh, united. It is uh, broken. It is uh, fragmented. And this is something we grieve and we pray uh, for Christ to heal. Uh, What we don't get to do is is redefine the terms to exclude anything outside of that which is formally united and say, look, the church is is all fine and good. Uh, It's not broken at all. Uh, the, The reformers never did that. They lamented the brokenness of, of the, the Christian church. Uh, so we do confess one Catholic church. Uh, we also confess a holy church, a holy church. Now, the word holy has unfortunately fallen on, on tough times. It's, often, it's more often used today as a derogatory term than it is as a good thing. Uh, so people speak of holy rollers uh, or holier-than-thou people. Uh, and, and these are both derogatory terms. Uh, but the word itself in Scripture is a precious word. It's a good thing. It means uh, one is set apart or belonging to God. 
Uh, as we saw, that's what the church is. It belongs to God. It's set apart from the world. Uh, now, we might be comfortable enough saying that about the Catholic Church, the universal church. We say that the universal church is holy, uh, but we should also confess that of each local congregation. Uh, we are, as a congregation, a holy church. Uh, this is Christ's church, and it is holy to Him. Uh, that means, in the first place, we should honor the local church, the local congregation, as belonging to Christ and holy to Him. Uh, that's why we honor the office bearers, giving them authority as, uh, or acknowledging their authority as those called by Christ, uh, because they are, because this is Christ's church here in this place. And so we treat the church with reverence and respect. It also means the worship service is not something to be trifled with uh, or, or played around with or, or re- reinvented at our own whim. Uh, the, the worship service is holy. It is something that is holy to God. Uh, so in our worship service, we are to conduct all things in obedience to the word of God and with reverence and fear. Uh, the, the author to the Hebrews in the book of Hebrews speaks in, in very high terms of, of what, what is happening in the worship service as something that is very holy to God. It has more weight and majesty than, than, what happened at Mount, than what happened at Mount Sinai where God uh, gave the Ten Commandments. Uh, and because we believe the church is holy, that also means we are to exercise church discipline. This is another uh, important truth the Reformers recovered. Uh, church discipline is there because the church is called to be holy. Now, that doesn't mean we believe the church is perfect. There's a difference between holy, set apart, sanctified by God, and perfect. We're not perfect. Uh, as you know, I'm sure you've heard the, uh, the uh, admonition, uh, there's no such thing as a perfect church, and if you ever find one, don't join it, because you'll ruin it. Uh, we, are, uh, we are imperfect people, and so we, we do not constitute a perfect uh, church, uh, though we do strive for purity. And what that means, then, is we deal with sin wherever it exists. Uh, We use church discipline uh, to deliver uh, brothers and sisters who are straying from their sin and to ensure that that sin is dealt with in the church and not tolerated or allowed to infect the whole church. It's Christ's church, and so it's holy. Yes, it is messy. It's full of broken sinners. uh, But they are sinners who've been redeemed by the blood of Christ and called to a life of holiness. Uh, the last uh, term uh, we want to pay some attention to is the word apostolic. It's not in the Apostles' Creed. It's in the Nicene Creed, one holy, Catholic, and apostolic uh, church. Uh, and that term means that the church is built on the foundations of the apostles who were sent by Christ. Uh, in Matthew 28, uh, shortly before Christ's ascension, uh, he, he stood on a mountain with his disciples and commissioned them to go forth uh, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. That means the church has an apostolic character. It's built under the commission, under the authority of Christ. 
Now, this is another point where Roman Catholics come against Protestants and they say, well, our church is apostolic. We can trace our lineage all the way back to to the first apostles. And you can't. And they they assume that that being apostolic is is simply having this unbroken line of succession. But that is not what the Nicene Creed means when it speaks of an apostolic church. Uh, Of course, in actual fact, we too can trace our lineage all the way back uh, from ordained uh, ordained preachers of the gospel all the way back to the the first apostles, just as they can. The reformers were not, uh, they didn't invent themselves. They were uh, appointed and ordained by by the church as well. Uh, But that's not what apostolic even means. It means the church is built on the foundation that is the truth, the teaching of the apostles. Uh, Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2, verse 20, uh, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ himself being the cornerstone. Uh, That's what apostolic means. Uh, It refers to the foundation on which the church is built. Uh, And so we do uh, confess one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. And by God's grace, it's a church that's chosen to everlasting life. Uh, The church is the assembly of those, as the Belgic Confession says, the assembly of believers, which is the assembly of those who are saved. Uh, The Apostle Peter speaks beautifully about this in his letter in chapter 2, which we read where he says, As you come to him... A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are called uh, to be a new human race, a new people. And Paul, or Peter says that. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And he says, uh, and he's using language that Moses uh, used in Deuteronomy. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Brothers and sisters, it is the absolute mercy of God that we have the privilege of being part of the one holy Catholic church. Uh, to, To be a people who were once far off, who have now been brought near to God, uh, chosen by God to be that royal priesthood and holy people for his own possession. Uh, that's, that's not something we get to say with any sort of pride. Like, look at us. Look at how great we are to be the true church. It's something we say by the grace of God, pointing to the mercies of God. Uh, we know all too well what we are by nature, but we get to boast in the grace of Christ. Uh, we have the privilege and honor of being His church, which is destined for the uh, destined for eternal life. Uh, we have the honor of being part, indeed, of His saving work in this world, as we uh, as we ourselves bear the gospel out to our neighbors uh, and to uh, to those around us, as well as when we send missionaries. We have the privilege of being not just the result of God's saving work, but also part of God's saving work as he carries the church forward. Uh, 
we, we get to say uh, uh, that, that we belong to brothers and sisters who were also saved by Christ. Uh, as David uh, says in Psalm 16, as for the saints in the land, they are my delight. We get to be part of a family of those who are called out and those who therefore belong to Christ and to one another. Uh, and, and as we do that, and especially as we worship him together, it is a foretaste of what we are called for in eternity, what we're called to be uh, for the rest of eternity, uh, that, that multitude that's gathered uh, from, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, uh, that stands before the throne of God and sings the praises of the one who saved them. That is our privilege. Amen.